Please turn your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, before I share the scripture this morning, I want to share a quick story. The year was 1630, 1630, nearly 300 years ago. The place was Massachusetts Bay along the Atlantic coast near the place known as Plymouth Rock. How many of you have heard that name before? Plymouth Rock. And on board the ship, the Arabella, a gentleman by the name of John Winthrop, who at the time was governor of the Massachusetts Bay Company, challenged the Puritan settlers to establish a new kind of Christian community. And I want you to hear the words that he shared with that group. This is what Winthrop said, and I quote, We, referring to these, this community of believers, must be knit together. Everybody say knit together. In this work as one person. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must delight in each other. We must make others condition our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. Our community as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us. What Winthrop was communicating to this crowd, and I want to emphasize this morning is this, that he knew, and we must understand today, that in this journey called the Christian walk, we are in it together. I've heard people use the phrase, well, my relationship with God is between God and myself. It is nobody's business. Lie. Because when you came to faith in Christ, you became a part of God's family. And every one of us will identify this morning that when we acknowledge people as family, we don't live try to live our lives separate from them or exclusive of them. Now, I'm not suggesting that because you're a family, it means you're supposed to be around each other or live together forever. No, the reality is, is that as we grow in life, we, we chart whatever direction God has called us to. But we never forget who we are. We never forget the community that we are a part of. We never forget under whose umbrella we all sit and are united by. And it's important for us to remember today that we are the church, not a church, not some church, we are the church. So I want you to look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, you are the church. Look at your other neighbor and say, neighbor, you are the church. Today we begin the, the first of a four-part series that I've titled, We Are the Church, and we, which we are going to be identifying four corporate church practices, four experiences that we have together, that we participate in together, that I believe is as much instrumental in shaping the unity, the kind of unity that Christ desires to exist in the church, but I believe is an illustration of this unity that he desires to be found among us. And the first church practice we're going to focus on today is what we know as communion, or is otherwise referred to as the Lord's Supper. So I want to invite you once again to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to read from verse 17 to verse 34. It's quite a few verses, but I think it's important for you to hear Paul's, the Apostle Paul's um, um, uh, explanation of the importance of communion. But, but in teaching about communion, he addresses a, a, an issue that, that, that involves the, the, the presence of threats to the unity that was meant to exist within the body of Christ. In verse 17, Paul begins by saying, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Let me stop there and explain what was going on. So, of course, part of the reason why Paul writes both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth was because of some issues that he learned were taking place within the community of believers. 
Um, like, like every place that Paul had the opportunity to go and to share the gospel, um, he was always reminded that the people that he had called to faith in Christ were flawed people and that um, while, just, while we are, while we are um, justified by, by faith through Jesus Christ, the process of sanctification is, is progressive. We don't change overnight. Um, we are a work in progress. That there's, there's a lot of work that God seeks to do in us to help us to be less and less like the world and, and less and less conform to the life and the mindset that from which he saved us and that we more and more reflect Christ. It's nothing that's going to happen overnight. Do not put pressure on yourself or allow anyone to put pressure on you that you have to you know, merely attain to everything that Christ calls you to overnight. It is not possible because we are human. And aren't you grateful that God is patient with us? That God, because God understands what we need to go through, what we need to experience, and so He takes us painstakingly through this process of helping us become more and more like Him. And Paul understood this. He understood that the believers were like babies that needed to be nurtured and, and fed and raised and oftentimes corrected when they were going in the wrong direction. And so when Paul learned that the church in Corinth were were doing things and they were, they were embracing practices that reflected the world more than reflected Christ, Paul had to address those things and he did so because it was important to him that the unity that exists within the body not be tampered with. In John 17, Jesus prayed a very, very powerful prayer. If you don't, if you've not had a chance to read that prayer, go back and look at it in your spare time, John 17. But the essence of what Christ prayed for was that the Father would help his followers be united. Unity is important to the Lord. In fact, the scripture tells us that a house divided cannot stand. And, 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 and over and over we see illustrated in the scripture the, the value that unity plays in our ability to be who God wants us to be. In fact, Jesus himself said that by our unity, the world will know that he is who he says he is. So again, I ask the question, when we are not united, what message are we sending to the world about who Jesus is? And so unity is something that we must always focus on, pay attention to, and be sure that we are playing our part in nurturing. If we find ourselves being a catalyst or being an agent that is causing division, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit, will, that, that you would respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction to stop. Because unity matters to God. And God desires that His body be united. So what was happening in the church at Corinth was that they began to have factions formed amongst the believers. Factions based on socioeconomic status, the haves versus the have-nots. Status, uh, 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 factions began to be based on, uh, factions based on who, who, who the, the, the different parts of the congregation wanted to support, whether it was Paul or whether it was Apollo or whether it was Jesus. Can you imagine that there were some who actually preferred Paul or Apollos over Christ? And Paul heard about all these things and Paul was upset and Paul was saying, no, this, this cannot be. Unity must define the body of Christ. And so part of the teaching that he provides is this issue of communion because what Paul, what Paul discovered was happening was that even the act of communion which was, meant to, which was meant to unify the believers became an excuse to divide. And Paul said it cannot be. That you would allow the very thing that's meant to bring all of us together, that's meant to draw believers together, and that we allow that to become the very reason why we are separated from one another. So again in verse 18, this is what Paul goes on to say, In the first place I hear that when you come together as a church, that there are divisions among you. And to some extent I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, Paul says, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So we see Paul addressing once again this issue of communion and the fact that the people had been, or not necessarily all of them, but for the most part, a, a, a vast majority were using communion as an excuse, other than as an excuse to indulge in their own selfish appetites, rather than it be a a platform or or an avenue to celebrate the sacrifice of our Savior Christ. And so what Paul does in these verses we just read, and I want to challenge you to consider this morning, is this. That as we, as we are reminded once again um, of the call that God has placed on our lives to be a united body and the responsibility that he has given each one of us to contribute to the growing unity within the body, that we remember this, that one of the things that I believe communion serves, the, one of the purposes I believe communion serves is to center, everybody say center. Communion is called to center our worship on Christ. Why? To remind you and I that we are united in his body and through his sacrifice. When we partake together in receiving the bread and the wine and to remember what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf 2,000 years ago, the idea is not for us to eat or drink because that's what we do. It's not for us to eat or drink because, well, that's what we're supposed to do or that's what, that's what Christ simply commanded us to do and so we're just going to do it. No, there is purpose. There is significance behind that. And so the attitude and the, and the approach and the mindset with, with which we come into that kind of experience in a corporate setting matters to God. And, and, and as we eat and drink, we must always make sure that we are, uh, our, our focus is on Christ and that in eating and drinking that we are celebrating Him for who He is and for what He's done in our lives. And so in these next couple of minutes, I just want to quickly share with you three things that the communion reminds us of even as we prepare to partake together this morning. The first thing I want to remind you today is this, that communion reminds you and I that Christ is our perfect mediator with God. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, that there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, for this has now been witnessed at the proper time. When Christ broke the bread and the wine with the disciples, of course, they had no clue what was getting ready to happen. In their minds, they thought this was one of many meals that they had shared with Jesus. It will only be later that they would realize that that event was significant, not only for that moment, but for history, because 
It would portend what Christ was getting ready to do. And, and why did Christ have to do this? If not because there was no other option that you and I had. Remember when I was growing up as, as, a, as, a, as a young person and I would, during Easter in, in Nigeria, they would always on the national, tele, national channel, they would always show uh, the, 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 the cinematic rendering of the, the life of Christ from his birth to his, his death and resurrection. And those scenes of Christ being uh, abused and, and, and beaten and spat on and, and, and called all kinds of names used to anger me as a kid. And I used to always think to myself, was there no other way? I mean, I mean why, did they have to, why did an innocent man have to go through this for everyone else? And, and, and in my mind, at the time, I didn't realize that, that, that what Christ came to do, he came to do because he was the only one that was qualified to do that. The Bible says that you and I, were, be, be, before, before we came to a knowledge of Christ and He changed our lives, we were, we were living in enmity toward God. Our, our nature, this nature that has been corrupted by sin, hates God, hates everything that God represents and that He stands for and that He wants to, to, to produce in our lives. It, it, it's constantly resisting that. It's constantly running from that. And, and the Bible says that in spite of the fact that our, 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 our corrupted, sin-wrapped sin nature is, is, is so opposed to any, any opportunity to, to embrace relationship with God, that God kept pursuing us. Do you realize what that means this morning? That when we wanted nothing to do with God, God chased after us. To remind us, friends, that salvation is not something that we earn or that God owes us. It is a gift. Because what we deserve is to be separated from Him. But when we partake together in communion, we're reminded that Christ came to be our perfect mediator, that Christ came to be our perfect substitute, that Christ came to take our place, to pay a debt we could not pay no matter how hard we try. And that what he did on the cross was sufficient in the eyes of a holy God so that you and I can have opportunity to know Christ as Savior and Lord and have a personal relationship with the God who loves us and desires to change us. Every time I eat and drink, it is an opportunity for me to acknowledge that Christ is my mediator. I don't eat or drink lightly because I, I recognize what it cost Jesus to stand in my place. I mean, we think about our lawyers today who, who are, are available whenever, whenever we need some kind of legal, legal, assistant, legal assistance. We all know how expensive they come, yes? And yet, we, we, you know, society respects the role that they play. How much more a savior? Who, who gave himself, who gave his life, not because it was, it was, it was, a, it was a service for which we, we, we are able to compensate him for his trouble, but, but because he loves us. That's the power of the gospel, that God would send his son to take our place and to demonstrate his love for us by being our mediator when, by that, on, when he died on the cross for you and I. Communion reminds us that Christ is our perfect mediator with God. Communion not only reminds us that Christ is our perfect mediator, communion reminds us that you and I have a common calling as joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Again, the Bible says that you and I, before we came to faith in Christ, were enemies of God. But that through Christ we become not just, not just, uh, we're, not just we're not just part of God's family as, in, in a sense of, well, we, 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 have, we have lesser privileges. We, 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 at least God gives you the chance to come to heaven and you, you at least should be happy with that. No, God gives us full benefit of being his children. God gives us full benefit of, of, of being his sons and daughters. And, and, and the greatest benefit is that we are joint heirs with Jesus. When Christ broke that bread, when he shared the wine with the disciples, he did so to make the point that communion is a celebration and an act of worship meant for those who are aligned by their profession of faith in Christ. Every one of us 
when we came to faith in Christ, came through the same door. We came through the same gate. His name is Jesus. I came through the same gate that you came through. Anyone that comes to know Christ or anyone that comes to relationship with the Father will have to come through the same gate. We'll have to come through the same door. And in that sense, we share a common calling as heirs with Christ. I want you to hear what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 and 16. The spirit you receive, Paul says, does not make you slaves. How many of you would say, praise the Lord? You know, I think about the story of the prodigal son, right? He leaves his father's house, takes his inheritance, he goes off and he squanders it. And he comes to his senses, the Bible says, and he comes back home hoping that at the very least he can be one of the house servants. Because he knew he did not deserve to be welcomed back as a son. And yet, when the father received him back, how did the father receive him? As a son or as a slave? As a son. Not because he deserved it, not because he was entitled to that right, but because of the father's love for him. And Paul says that the spirit you and I receive when we come to faith in Christ does not make us slaves so that we live in fear again. Rather, the spirit we receive has brought up, you receive, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by this same spirit, we now cry, Abba, Father. That word, Abba, Father, demonstrates intimacy. So it's that God didn't just simply save us, but he brings us into an intimate relationship with him where we know him and where, where, where we make him known, where he transforms our lives, where we are living up to the identity that we are, we are brought into because we are, we're, we're found in Christ. And Paul says in verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You are a child of God. You are a child of God because of what Jesus did. You are a child of God because of what Jesus demonstrated on the cross when he died on the cross for your sins. And every time we participate in communion together, Paul says that it's a reminder that we have a common call as joint heirs with Christ. The third thing that communion reminds us of this morning is that you and I, because we are in Christ, who we are today is not who we once were. And that, that for me, I think is probably the greatest of all. I heard a preacher say many, many years ago that God loved me just as I am, but he loved me too much to let me stay the same. And that is our story. That, is, that, that should be all of our story. That, that God embraced us as we were with all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and, and all of the condemnation that we deserve rightfully because of our sin. And the Bible says that God took all of that. He took, off, he took the, the, the yoke, the, the weight, the burden that all of that puts on us. He took all of that off of us. And it gives us a burden that is easy and a yoke that is light. And the Bible says that it reminds us over and over that God's desire is that you and I, even though we've come to, come to faith in Him and He accepts us just as we are, but that we realize that God doesn't want us to remain the way we are. So when we re receive communion, when we participate in communion, it is a reminder, friends, that in Christ, who you are today is not who you once were. Tomorrow, who you are in Christ is not what you were a year ago. And that every single day of our lives as we walk with Jesus, however many years that the Lord allows us to walk with Him on the earth, that who we are is not who we once were, that we are growing, that we are going deep in our relationship with the Lord, that we're becoming more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. Celebration, friends, is, uh, communion, excuse me, is a celebration of a changed life. Communion is a celebration of a changed life, a life that is changed through the Lamb of God's work on the cross. <coughs> excuse me. And it is a way that we come together to acknowledge that who we were before we met Christ is not who we are now today. Take inventory of your own life and, and you would answer the question, I believe in the affirmative. Pastor John, who I am today is not who I was when I first met Jesus. 
Who I am today is not who I was when Christ first touched my life. That, that is how it should be. That we are growing in our relationship with the Lord. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 to verse 18. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil, Paul says, it says it's taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, finish that statement with me, there is, there is, <coughs> excuse me, there is, say it like you believe it, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. freedom. Are you walking in freedom today? Because that is our testimony. That because we are walking with Christ, that who we are is not who we once were. Paul says that those who have the Spirit, those who are walking with the Spirit, experience a freedom that only the Spirit can bring. And, when, and we all, Paul says, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. And this is the part I love. He says we are being transformed. He says we are being changed into His image with ever-increasing glory. That phrase is very significant because what it points to is this reality, friends, that who we are, who we are becoming today, in contrast to who we were yesterday, is taking us in the direction of who, who God is ultimately going to make us be. Because we're, we're, you and I are heading in the direction of, of a future where we will never have to deal with sin. We will never have to deal with the struggles of this life. Where Christ, when he returns for his church, will redeem us once and for all from the presence and power of sin. Paul is saying to you and I that, that every time we participate in communion, that we're reminded of what Christ has done in our lives, where he's brought us from, and where he's taken us to. And it, is, it must be our expectation, friends, that we are to look forward in anticipation of where Christ is taking us next and what he wants to do in our lives. Communion is, an, is a reminder for you and I to reset our focus, to remember who we serve, to remember how we are to serve, and, 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 and invites us to, to devote ourselves continually to a process of renewal, which Paul says must happen daily. Every time I read the word, I'm being renewed. Every time I spend with the Father, I'm being changed, I'm being transformed. Every time I walk in obedience to the word, my life, is, my, my life is, is being impacted in a, in, a, in a real and a very lasting way. All of this is so that you and I can experience the transformative work of the Holy Spirit, whose desire is to work in us and to bring to full effect God's perfect plan for our lives. On our way to heaven this morning, I want to encourage you. <coughs> Remember who you are. You are the church. You are the church. And because God has called you to be his church, how you live, how you walk, how you carry yourself must reflect who he has called you to be. And, and, and in, in, in your interaction with each other, in your interaction with others who of like mind and like faith, we must remember that we have a shared calling to encourage and to support and to stand by each other. Again, I remind you that in Jesus, we have a capable mediator and advocate. And through Christ, we are co-heirs of God's promises. And because we know Christ, we are continually being changed. Every time we partake in communion, it's an invitation for us to examine our hearts and to make sure, God, am I in alignment with your will? Am I in alignment with your calling? Am I in alignment with your purpose? And if I'm not God, set me back on the right path. Help me to be in alignment with your will for my life. Help me to be who you want me to be so that your name is glorified by my obedience. And I believe that when we are committed to that, God will indeed work in our lives according to his perfect will. And that God will do great and mighty things to us. Amen.
I want to invite you to bow your heads with me this morning as we pray. Before we participate together in communion today and receiving the elements, I think it's important that I give someone here an opportunity, if you haven't, to make things right with God this morning. You know, the Bible says that if we say that we are without sin, that we are liars, and we are, in essence, we're, we're suggesting that God is a liar. God is not a liar. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. There is a standard that God has established, that God has set, and it is a standard that is based on his very nature. God is holy, God is perfect, God is righteous. And yet this holy, perfect, righteous God desires relationship with you and I, and yet the issue that, 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 that will always stand in the way of a relationship with God is sin. Sin, the Bible says, we inherited because of Adam and Eve's decision to disobey God in the garden, and we inherited that tendency, that disposition to disobey God as well, to choose a course, a path in life that is in conflict with God's will for our lives. It's, it's, it's what we're born with. But the Bible says that, that God loved you and I so much that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. God's desire is that it's not for you and I to be separated from him. God wants you and I to know him. He wants you and I to experience him in this life, but also to know that when this life for us is over, that we will be with him forever. But that issue of sin needs to be, ad needs to be addressed. And there's nothing that you and I can do on our own to resolve sin. We can't earn our way into God's uh, approval. We can't, we can't do enough good and hope that it will outweigh the bad. We can't even obligate God to forgive us or to, or to allow us into heaven. The only way you and I can be right with God, the only way you and I can experience relationship with God is by knowing His Son, Jesus, and, and understanding the full measure of what Christ did and why it was important that He died in our place. The Bible says Christ became sin for us so that we might experience the righteousness that only God can give. And if you're here this morning and do not have a relationship with Jesus, the most important decision you can ever make, friends, is to embrace Christ today as your personal Savior and Lord. To acknowledge that God created you for a relationship with himself and that that relationship is not possible unless you step through the door that is Jesus. And you've never made that decision today to say, Jesus, I want, I choose you. I choose to follow you. I choose to embrace the life that you desire for me. And it begins by acknowledging, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. It was my sin that put you there. And to acknowledge that, that his death was sufficient to pay for your sin. That it's not that you can do anything else to earn God's approval, but, but you recognize that what Christ did paid for your sins. And that it is through Christ that you can have a relationship with God. And all you have to do this morning is to simply acknowledge that. Call out to the Lord. The Bible says we confess with our mouth that Christ is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. We shall be saved. That is the Father's promise. It's not my promise. It is his. And his invitation to you is to simply say, Father, help me. I need you. Can't go on without you. The sense of purpose, the sense of calling, fulfillment that I need, I can't find in chasing the things that the world offers me. I will only find those things in knowing you, and I want to know you today. It was my privilege to pray with you this morning. And so with every head bowed and every eyes closed, if that's you this morning and your desire is to embrace Christ today as your personal Savior and Lord, I want to lead you in a very brief prayer. I want to invite you to make this prayer your own. Mean it in your heart and believe today that God will respond to you as your profession of faith is done with honesty and with integrity of heart. And I want to encourage everyone else here this morning to encourage those who are making this commitment of faith to Christ to pray along with us as, as, they, as they take this step of, of obedience and faith in Jesus today. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, thank you today for giving me this opportunity to make this right with you. I acknowledge your word today 
that, that, that testifies to the reality that I am a sinner and that it is my sin that keeps me from relationship with God. I come to you today and I acknowledge that I need you in my life. I acknowledge that it is only through your sacrifice that I can be forgiven. That my sin debt was fully paid when Jesus died on the cross. And I embrace the life that only he can provide. And I thank you for the forgiveness that he has made possible today. I invite you to come into my life, be my Lord, be my savior, live in me, live through me, help me to live for you. And may my life be pleasing to you. May, may, may Christ be seen in me. May, may your presence be revealed through me. And may my life never be the same as I walk with you daily. Thank you for making me your own. Thank you for giving me a new identity. Thank you for changing my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.